All right. Uh, some of the words that uh, my friends might use to describe my next guest would be a genius, a witch doctor, a Nobel Prize winner, an Elon Musk, a valedictorian, a bookworm, a damn miracle worker. You're the author of the book Chaos in Color, which is a memoir of childhood trauma and forgiveness. Please welcome to the show, Layla Salik. Hi, thank you for having me. Of course, appreciate you being here. Uh, I haven't spoken to someone in quite some time, so it's uh, it's nice to see somebody, somebody's face. I haven't been touched in longer, but uh, <laughs> you know, that's uh, that's not in a perverted way. That's in a loving way. I just ever since COVID, you know, it's been it's been weird. the uh, The social relationships have just been kind of out of reach and out of touch. Do you feel the same way, or have you been pretty good? Well, I mean, the pandemic was a little strange. I felt like it kind of set us all back in some ways, um, years, and then I felt like it kind of pushed us ahead in years. So it just depends on really, you know, what it is. In psychology, it's wonderful when the pandemic hit because now we have like telehealth and um, talk therapy and, you know, people can do everything from their home now. But then in some ways it's set us back socially. So it's odd. Yeah. Do you so have you been noticing with children that there's a setback because kids have to do they were doing homeschooling for quite some time and there's that whole aspect you lose with the the social variety of that? Um children have regressed significantly, like oh boy. years of regression. Um academically, all scores yeah. are the lowest they've ever been in the history oh. of doing scores. Um academically they're down socially they have regressed i mean years yeah. um it's behaviorally they've regressed i mean it's it, it it's really taken a toll on our kids and really i'm not even sure that we even know the whole effects of it do you have any kids yourself i do i have a, a daughter that's about to be 21 she goes to boston university nice um, <clears throat> and so you know she spent her last two school years at home there are yeah. high school years at home. That sucks. That's horrible. I have a uh, I have a five year old. Oh, wonderful! A girl yes. or a boy? I have a boy. Oh, boy. that's fun. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. But yeah, you know, like during the I think he was like two and three during those COVID years, and we were worried about like if is wearing a mask, covering faces, doing something to their their cognitive health, you know, and. You know, I've seen mixed studies about that. Like kids need to see facial recognition. And when you cover up the face, it's it's delaying them. Did you hear anything along those lines? Yes. yes. Yeah. And especially for little ones, that was a very hard thing because um, it sets them back socially. You know, most of our social um, skills comes from the idea of being able to read people, read their yeah. emotions, read their behaviors. And we couldn't do a lot of that. And children need to be around other children. You know, that's how they grow. And so when they were at home, they just weren't receiving all the socialization that they needed to receive. So, yes, there is a lot of regression. Okay. Yeah. That's unfortunate. Um, I want to ask you what what led you to become a behavioral psychologist? How'd you get down this road? Oh, so, you know, I write about this in Chaos and Color. Um 
I grew up with a mom, a single mom that was mentally ill. She was untreated bipolar. And so within that, with my childhood, there was a lot of trauma that I experienced. And the way that I set out to kind of deal with this trauma was to go into psychology. And I didn't go into behavior at first. I actually went into experimental psych at TCU. And it pretty early on, I realized that was not what I wanted to do. What's and experimental psych? So you, um, it was in social psychology, but experimental psychology means that within your particular field, you do research and then you publish it so that okay. other people can apply what you have found. And I didn't want to just do research and publish it and then do more research and publish it. I actually wanted to go out and work with people. So I stopped that PhD and then went into my master's and really had to go back and find out what I wanted to do. And so I just so happened, I got into a master's in applied behavior analysis and absolutely loved it. And so when I finished my master's, went directly into a PhD in the same thing. And so I, you know, whenever I work with kids, which I'm retired now, but whenever I worked with children, I always felt like that I was, you know, helping my mom as a young kid and changing oh, these nice. children's future so that it changes their kids' lives. And yeah. so it was very, very rewarding. Yeah, that sounds fulfilling. I mean, and it's directly linked to your family, to your mother. I mean, yeah, that seems like a good calling there. So what was it like living with your mother? What What is... Uh, bipolar that's untreated look like in a household? Well, you know, it can look very different across individuals. It can look different in females than it does in males. Um, but my mom, you know, bipolar means you have cycles of mania mm -hmm. and cycles of depression. And my so, cousin was just diagnosed with it a couple uh, months ago. It, yeah. it, it breaks my heart. Um, you know, they really do need to be treated and get on medication and go to counseling. And, but my mom, when she was manic, you know, she was up and high and fun and, and then she would leave and not return for a long time. Oh, and geez. then she would come back when she was depressed and then could not get out of bed. Um, and then we would finally get her to this place called MHMRA, which was a public mental health uh, that you could take people to. And they would prescribe her Valium. And then why? I don't know. And then she would come home and try to commit suicide. So we went through this cycle a lot when I was young. We're talking years. I'd imagine years, years beyond years. Yeah, that's that's so straining. Yeah. Um, do they often, people that are bipolar, look, look for drugs or alcohol as an outlet? Because this is one thing I noticed with my cousin. Every time that he reaches out, in this and he, he i'm his closest cousin and every time he reaches out is when he's like down spiraling and he's talking suicidal but he says he won't ever do it and he's been seeing therapists as well but whenever it's this down spiral it's because it's alcohol induced and he's like it's the only thing that helps i'm like is it really helping though because whenever you seem to drink we end up in the same spot and it's you texting me saying how you hate your life and nothing's going as it seemed and it all started with the girl but like his his uh his marriage got you know they're going yeah, through a divorce I mean, right now so a, a lot yeah. of times they i mean i think it's an upwards of nine over 90 percent of marriages that have bipolar a, a bipolar individual they end up in divorce which is sad but during yeah. the mania phase um typically they will 
drink and do drugs and seek that out. A lot of it is trying to self-medicate and feel better. A lot of it is they're on a high and, you know, they feel good. And, um, and so they'll drink and do alcohol. And that's usually when people think they're, they're fun and they're doing great and then they crash. And then that's yeah, the yeah. depressive part of it. And that's when mm. they get suicidal. Um, yeah. it's, it's just, it breaks my heart, but there is help. You know, they do need to be on medication. They do need to be sober. Um, and they do need to stick with therapy. I mean, it is it's it a genetic? Thing. It is. We, we do know that there is, that is genetic. Yes. Interesting. So because both my cousins have it and I know that my grandma, my dad's side had it, mm-hmm. but I don't have it. My brother doesn't have it. My mom doesn't have it, but a lot of people on my other side have it. Yeah. It, just it, walk it is a draw genetic. Or what? Yeah. You don't just come up with it out of nowhere. It definitely is genetic. Um, and you know, they do need help. They do need support. That is one of the things that I write about in my book that leaving, leaving into it, you know, that typically what families do is they have enough, they get fed up and <clears throat> excuse me, they will end up leaving them. You know, it's like this tough love thing that people learned about a long time ago and they need help that, that doesn't work isolating them. They, they need support and they need information and knowledge and they need someone to get them, help them get hooked up with a good therapist and get into groups. And there is a wonderful um, bipolar support group for those that are bipolar and people that are around them called Remind and they're free. And they're every day of the week. You can go and Beautiful. it's amazing, amazing, amazing group. It's a wonderful resource. Um, is there something that can trigger the bipolar? Like we understand that you're born with it, so it's genetic. But is there something that can, like say you go like the first 17 years and you don't notice anything and then all of a sudden it, something makes it come on site or like, are you pretty well, sure we you call it a uh, breaking, which yeah, means okay. that it comes out typically your late teens, early twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, working with kids, we can see signs of it when they're yeah. young. I think even some psychiatrists were diagnosed baby bipolar, but really you should not do that. Um, mm. but you can kind of see some behaviors of it when they're younger, but it won't be as pronounced and it won't be something that really a lot of families will, will cue into. Um, but it, you will start to really see it late teens, early twenties. And that's when the cycles become very pronounced. And some people can rapid cycle where they'll go from mania to depression within a week. Some people, they have longer cycles. It could be monthly. Um, you know, it just depends. Everybody is really different. So you seem like an extraordinary case, like a rare case, because your mother had bipolar, but you came out on the other side for the better. I'd imagine it's not like that for most people. No, no, it isn't. Um, You know, I talk about this in Chaos and Color. There was a psychologist that I worked with, and she, um, you know, at one point really sat me down and said, I want you to take this this measure and it's online. People can get it. Um, and it's like about 10 traumas that you can have in childhood. And she was like, I want you to check off all the traumas that you've had. And I had eight out of 10. The only two that I did not have 
So I was never sexually abused and I didn't have a parent that went to prison, had all the other ones. And then she said, I want you to take this resilience questionnaire. And that's also online. You can get it online. And out of 14 of the resiliency, I had 13. And she said, that is why you made it because you were so resilient. So a lot of people, if they have a lot of trauma, but they're low on resiliency, like they just, it just, they're, you know, they don't have people around them to support them. They, they told themselves that, you know, them being abused was their fault. Um, You know, there's many things that go into it. They didn't, they never felt like somebody loved them. They didn't have some support. They didn't get support from school. They didn't have like, you know, one of the most beautiful things that I learned in research is that when someone goes to prison, Mm -hmm. if they just have one person that checks on them, writes to them, calls them, the, the um, likelihood of them going back to prison goes down significantly. Really? And that is basically what resiliency is, is that you know you can get out there and do it. You have people that are support you. You know that there's someone out there that loves you. And I did have that. You know, I put that in my book. I have very different chapters of my grandfather being with him on this every summer when I was little and, you know, knowing that he loved me and that I had people mm. that cared about me, another family that cared about me. And so it is sad when you have children that are with parents that are, you know, for whatever reason, fighting addiction or fighting mental illness or whatever they're fighting. And they're very isolated and they don't have anyone. Um, Those are the kids that you really need to worry about. Okay. Wonderful. Wow. Yeah. You've been through a lot. I'm glad to see you that you're, you're doing well and passing on the knowledge that you've learned. Sometimes it's like, these blessings in disguises, right? Like you go through so much trauma, but the strong ones like yourself, the resilient ones are able to almost like in an art form, like come out on the other side and are able to articulate it to those in need. So you're, yes, you're very, you. yeah. I started writing the book and I wrote the chapters. I didn't write them in order though. You wouldn't know it reading it. And I was going to give them to my mom. I wanted my mom to read them so we could finally have some conversation over something. Um, And then as my family members and different people would read them, I'd give it to people if they were in there and they'd read them and they were like, you know what, you need to publish this. This doesn't Mm -hmm. need to just be something that you keep within the family. This needs to be published. And I do believe that. What I love is when I go to book signings or book readings, so many people come up to me and they, they're like, our family hasn't talked about this, but I'm going to give this book to our family you know, I I have a mother-in-law that's bipolar. I have a sister that's bipolar, you know, or, you know, somebody that has major depression and they're not getting help. And the conversations that are coming out of this are just amazing. And it is what people need to be talking about. Yeah. It's a conversation starter. How many people do you know the, uh, the percentage of what people are depressed or have bipolar? I don't, and it changes. And what we have found is this generation of kiddos, um, you know, basically, definitely middle school, high school, around in college, like, you know, kind of this 10 year span in there. Um, they are, they don't follow any generational curve of all the previous generations. Whoa. And so they have more depression, more anxiety, more suicidal, more isolated oh, than Jesus. any other generation ever. They don't want to leave their home. They don't want to drive. They don't want to leave their parents. Every generation before them, you know, they were super excited to drive and they yeah, rebelled yeah. and they wanted to leave home and they were glad to get out. There's just, 
we know that the social media has a really big component to it. Mm -hmm. Um, but it is very sad. It looks very different than other generations. I think it's not just the social media. It's when the social media came to an iPhone. So it was in your pocket and on your person 24 hours a day. Yeah. I mean, you, you can just stay in your room. Seriously. You you concerned me when you said that at the very beginning, you know, if you, if you're getting, if you're isolated and you're feeling depressed and you're overly anxious and you're fearful, a lot of that means you're staying so much in your head. You know, I, oh, I do yeah. a lot of teaching of how to get people out of their head because they stay very fear, fearful and anxious. Um, and it it does worry me. And I do see that the pan, you know, it's not just social media. I see that the pandemic made that so much worse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been doing some things. I go to open mic on Wednesdays to get out and get out of my comfort zone. I Good. go to the go to the gym. I go to the health club. I run outside a lot to get that vitamin D, but I, I like I'm in my thirties now. And that just that social aspect is, is almost, it's completely gone, you know, cause I don't like to drink or do drugs. So I, what? I don't like going to the bar, you know, and a lot yeah. of my friends who were my friends still do that, mm-hmm. you know, and I have my kid and I mean, I meet people at sporting events that he's in a lot of sports and I'll coach some of his teams, but it's just a, it's a, it seems like almost like another paradigm that I'm entering. It's so strange, mm-hmm. you know, well, it is odd. It's almost like we're more connected globally through technology, but somehow that being more collective connected globally made us more isolated individually. I mean, it's a very, yes, very ironic and odd concept we're in right now. What are your thoughts overall on social media? Where do you stand by it? Oh, I think social media is perfectly fine as long as you're it, you limit your time. Like I have a timer on my phone. Yeah. <laughs> and if I've been on the only one that I'm ever on is Instagram because I'm also a photographer, but oh, if okay. I'm on Instagram, you know, Instagram up to 45 at 45 minutes, a little alert will go off. And I'm like, "Okay, I need to be done." <laughs> good for you. Yeah, a lot of people should uh, adopt that. That's pretty good. <laughs> Nice. It's helpful because you don't know how much time you've you just, spent on you there. You get sucked in that thing. Yeah, you get sucked in that wormhole. You mm-hmm. do very quickly and you can be on it forever. <laughs> I took a poll on a, I have a face Facebook group. I took a poll mm-hmm. and I was wondering what age do you think uh, people should be able to use social media? And everybody said 18 and up. Like a lot of people were saying that kids should not be using social media. They don't see any benefit. I'm sure there are, but the, it seems like the cons outweigh the pros in that case of social media yeah. for kids. Yes. I mean, I kind of have to go with that. I would definitely, the sad thing is, is not everybody's adhering to it. So what I, I know, find is a yeah. lot of parents that are really strict on their children about social media, they have like this uphill battle to climb. You know, they're, they want their child to have a phone so they can get a hold of them and the child can yeah. get a hold of them. But mm-hmm. then they put all these parental controls on the phone. But then we have mm. children that are so much smarter than us in technology. <laughs> That's right. You know, they'll have what looks like to be a calculator, but it isn't. It's a way for them to go to Instagram or TikTok or, um, you know, they can get around so many things that we have no idea that they're doing. Um, it's hard, but you know, it's not good for them. It really is not good for them. They need to learn those social skills. They need to be out there socializing and, you know, just 
I, I'm, I give to Mercy for Animals um, monthly, and I speak with the man that is over Mercy for Animals. And one of the ways that we got connected is that on TikTok, there's a lot of animal cruelty. Really? And oh, I... What's that all about? I don't know. And it makes me cringe. I'm not on TikTok, but it makes me cringe to think about young children. Or, I mean, anybody seeing it, but then you think about what young kids are exposed to on social media that mm-hmm. they shouldn't be. I mean, they just, they absolutely should not be. Yeah, I agree so with it that. Is. It's an uphill battle. I mean, I'm with them. You know, I do think you should really have parental controls up and, th- you know, up to high school, but Good luck with that. Yeah, you just ratted out a lot of kids saying that the calculator is probably a social media, so you're <laughs> probably not very yes. well liked right now. <laughs> no, there are so many ways for them to get around it on the phone. That's crazy. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Kids are creative. I mean, we used to be as well when we were young. So I mean, True. you know, I don't know. Um, yeah. So let's say so you didn't have a dad growing up, right? Well, I mean, I have a dad and we're super close now. Um, oh, interesting. My dad okay. and parents divorced when I was three, three or four, I think about mm-hmm. three or four, um, you know, which I understand. It was something that he just literally could not be around this lady anymore. The oh, problem right, was yep. is in the 70s, um, the court system would not give custody to a dad. It did not matter what the mom was going on with the mom. They did not see dads as suitable parents. It's very odd. That seems like a pretty good case if your mom has bipolar that they would give you to your dad. I mean, wouldn't you think, right? I mean, you would think it, and they just would not let it happen. He could have visitations, but they just would not let it happen. And so I would see, you know, visitations, and I would see when I would go and stay with his father during the summers, I would see him in the summer. But, you know, it's just divorce for me was very devastating. You know, I was very close to my father and he was, you know, the figure in my life and my home that was like super normal and (laughs) very funny and good looking. And, you know, it was horrible when, when that happened. So did your mom have like, did your mom have the overall say with visitation rights? So your mom had full custody of you? Everything, and then, you know, That's here crazy. and here, you know, she would leave me at home as a very young child for weeks at a time, and I couldn't go be with my dad. <laughs> it, I mean, it was just a very odd. It was horrible. They do not do that anymore, which I'm sure you're aware. I'm sure you've been through yeah. this, but you know, mm-hmm. it's very hard. It seems like court ordered child abuse. Yes. And I mean, you know, in some ways we do still a little bit do that. You know, if you have a parent that, um, you should watch the documentary that's out right now. Maybe um, I've seen it. Get help for Maya or help for Maya. Have you seen I that? Seen it. On no. Netflix? What is it? It's about a child that, um, had this very odd disease and the mom and dad we're trying very hard to get her help and they were taking her everywhere. And it's in this one area. Well, actually it's happening all over the United States, but it was very pronounced in this one area and the hospitals made it to where they got custody of the child and the child was there in the hospital with them. And the parents were not allowed to see the kid, 
Um, they thought that it was Munchausen's by proxy. And so they wouldn't let the mom see him. They, the dad finally What's got to that? see her a little bit. What's the Munchausen? mom ended up committing suicide because she couldn't see her daughter. They eventually found out that, yes, she did have a real disease. And it was just the parents trying to help. Um, and then when this documentary came out and this court case opened up about it, all these families started saying, oh, my God, this happened to me, too. They took Whoa. my kid away. I couldn't get my kid back. And, you know, so we do have we do still have very significant problems that if if CPS or the state thinks at all that you're doing anything to your child, they have full rights to come in and just take your kid. And then oh, it takes you a ridiculous amount of money and time to get your child back. And now your child's like been sitting in foster care, getting, you know, who knows what's happening yeah. to them. Um, but it's insane. But they just were awarded, um, the documentary's out right now on Netflix, but they just were awarded $281 million for what they did to that family. That's a lot of money, but it doesn't bring back your mom, you know? Well, and that's literally what the daughter said. The daughter is in college now. And I mean, it's horrible. They wouldn't even let her say goodbye to her. <laughs> so wow. sad. That's, yeah. But yes, I mean, I that's can talk sick. about what they did in the 70s. But yes, there's there, there's still a lot of work to be done when it comes to CPS and the foster care and, you know, family courts. And why do they hold so much power? The CPS, like, how, how did that happen? They think they know better or than the, the families? Or, like, how, how know, do they I, have so much power like that? I really don't know. And I can say that there have been times in my decades of working with children that I have intentionally called CPS to get a child help, and I can't mm -hmm. get help. Oh, my God. Okay. So you tell me. What, why did they decide to respond? I don't know. Not one time did anybody when I was young get me right. help. Right. Yeah. You come from it too. Knew something was wrong. I failed the eighth grade because I missed 89 days of school. Whoa. The school knew something was wrong. Nobody did anything. Now, did they contact CPS? I have no idea. Maybe they did. But I have had many, many cases um, where I've contacted CPS and they've never done anything. So I don't know. <laughs> that's insane that's, that's insanity you, to me you just came up with like a huge problem that we're all wondering i don't know yeah i'm gonna look into it that's nuts maybe i can get someone on here from cps on the podcast that would and, be wonderful and it may right. just be they have so many cases i don't know and underfunded like most of our state i don't know yeah. i don't know well that's you being nice it's probably not <laughs> yeah i don't know you know strange um okay so yeah your dad left but you didn't want him to leave because it was court ordered. So what types of things did you notice in your life when he left? And I'm trying to make a connection because I like to talk about like, should parents, if able stay connected, even if it's pretty toxic in that household, or is it better for the kid to get divorced, but you still have like these seeing rights? Well, I have you, I have a whole, whole <laughs> opinion on that. I do have a feeling that people get divorced too soon. I think people get, mm -hmm. if they're like any little thing they're uncomfortable over, they don't want to deal with, it's like we can just get divorced. And to me, it becomes very selfish. It, you know, if, if you don't have children, do what you want to do. But when you have children, I do think you should go to every possible link to try to fix what's going on in the home. 
I mean, I think family counseling needs to occur. Individual counseling needs to occur. Your child needs to be in therapy. Like, I think that you need to do everything possible to keep this family together. In any relationship, there are ups and downs. Life is not this perfect little wonderful thing in a bow, and it isn't ever going to be. And love, I mean, loving someone doesn't mean when lust is over, I'm done and I'm getting out. You know, you have kids involved. So I do think people need to, A, be more intentional and more serious about I'm getting married and I'm really going to stay married or don't get married. But if it is very toxic and people are being abused and beaten and, you know, there, it's a very horrible situation, yes, you need to go. And then the child needs to be in therapy. Therapy needs to be central for the child because you, nobody realizes, parents don't realize how much a child takes on that burden and guilt that the parents divorced. A lot of times, even if you don't see it right away, right? Because sometimes it takes a little bit for it to present itself. Like it might just seem like normal going for the first three years, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's a, it's a baby and you're just doing these things. It's always with you. It's not acting out, but then Mm -hmm. eventually something will happen. Yeah. I mean, in my experience, my parents divorced like three or four and around like five or six, I would have these fits where I would cry so hard that nobody could get me to stop crying. Wow. And the only thing that would get me to stop crying was my dad. And so they really? would have to like get in the phone book and try to find my dad and like, where's my dad? And I was just so devastated and sad that he was not around. But nobody ever, you know, we never had, we were very poor, but we never had anyone talking to me about it or talking to my mom about it or dealing with my dad. Like they're just... People so many times just say, oh, we're going to get a divorce and it's going to be fine. I'm going to make sure that the child sees his mom or his dad. We're going to share custody. We're going to do all this without realizing that that child has taken on so much. And they're so sad that they're not both in the home. You know, it's it's fair. Even if it's toxic, that is their mom or dad. You know, we we find the kids, even if they've been through a lot of trauma, which I had eight out of 10, you know, I still loved my mom. <laughs> yeah, you, know, yeah. You, you still love your parent. Um, a lot of damage is done to a child when you're bad mouthing the other parent. Yes. Um, it changes their chemistry when they see their parents fighting. Um, you know, there's just so much research on that. And so my first initial thing is only get married if you're really serious about being married, be intentional about it, go to counseling before you get married. And then you're going to have problems in a marriage, stay in counseling or get couples counseling when you're in it. If you know you've been fighting in the home, get your child counseling as well. Go to family counseling. But if you get a divorce, don't forget that child. The child needs help as well. So you got to see your dad at least when you were growing up. So what does it look like for kids that never met their dads? The dads just bailed on them. They never met them. Is it? Is it horrible. (laughs) It's horrible. Is it easier though, since they don't know what their dad was? So they wouldn't look at that person as a blanket, kind of like you did, because you knew he existed. Um, You know, I, first of all, you know, my dad was not around as much as I would have liked for him to be around. Um, You know, there were many times that I didn't have visitations with him. And a lot of that had to do with my mom and him fighting. But, um, you know, I, 
there's always a longing in children to find their parent and know their parent. They always feel like something is missing in them. Um, they could definitely have significant abandonment issues. Um, you know, it will end up affecting their relationships. What does that and result so, in? What does that look like? You know, they any number of things. I mean, the way people can log this in is any number of ways. You know, one of the big significant things is you have no idea the parent that's still remaining, what they're saying about the parent that's gone. <laughs> that that also has significant um, impact on the child. Um, I am a firm believer that everyone needs to be in counseling. I am a firm believer that whatever you've been through, you need to handle before you enter in a relationship with someone else or get married or have a child. Um, any little thing that you are carrying with you, you know, what we know is whatever childhood trauma you have not fixed before you get married, you will end up attracting the exact same problems because your brainstem wants you to continue to fix whatever you did not fix in your childhood. So you attract that to you That's so that crazy. you keeps playing it out so that you fix it. And the problem what happens is people go, Oh my God, that's so weird. You know, like I married someone that's bipolar before I realized what was happening. And so you're like, oh my God, how did that happen? Why did that happen? Because everything that I had in my childhood, I did not fix before I got married. So I attracted that to me and that's what I'm doing. So then say, say my husband acted bipolar, bipolar, he's doing all this. And I'm like, oh my God, well, I'm getting a divorce. So I get a divorce, which I do not. We are still together. Everything's fine. But if I got a divorce and then I went out there and I still did not fix my issues, I'm going to attract the same thing again. So you hear people that go, I keep dating the same girl. I keep marrying the same man. Well, of course you do because you, your body is trying to correct that and fix those issues. You just don't realize that's happening. So I say, go fix it before you involve a little kid in it that has no idea that they're go they're coming into such generational trauma that now they're going to have to try to fix. That's insane. So I was just looking at like my entire life while you were speaking about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. A lot of people don't realize that. And it makes so much sense what you do. And literally yeah. what you just did is what people do. They're like, Oh my God, I did that. And I do like, even my first love, I probably am very certain he was probably mentally ill or at least had addictions um, and didn't even realize what I was doing. Like you don't really, you just think, Oh my God, I'm so in love. That person's amazing. And then before long, the problems bubble up that you didn't deal with in your childhood. And you're like, Oh my God. And then you're like, well, I got to get a divorce. And really probably wow. y'all could probably stick together and go to counseling yeah. and do what you're supposed to do. And it's going to be fine. And y'all could be the ones that stop the generational trauma, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. which is hard to do. So my family is a very weird case, I would say. My dad left when I was probably around 13 years old, but my parents never got divorced. They've been separated for about 22 years, and I see him maybe like three or four times a year, if that, but they haven't got divorced, but they're separated. So I live in like this state of limbo. It's, it's very strange, right? Yeah. You know, and it's odd that you say that my mentor in psychology, who is a clinical psychologist himself, 
has done the exact same thing. He has been separated from his daughter's mom for like 28 years. Yeah, okay. They have never divorced. He does have another like girlfriend that he's had, but he's never been remarried, obviously, because he hasn't divorced yep. from the other one. And it, he makes me laugh because he is a clinical psychologist, amazing clinical psychologist. <laughs> That's so bizarre. <laughs> so I have no Whoa. idea. So I can't tell you that your parents are going to get divorced. I don't know. They could be, this could continue to go on. Why don't you uh, go to family counseling? Why don't you talk to them about going to family counseling? I think the guy that you're talking about might be my dad because he has a girlfriend too. So. <laughs> oh, wow. How funny. Yeah. Yeah. He has a well, girlfriend. Maybe go to family counseling. I mean, I would be down for it. My mom would. I mean, we can't. It's. It would be impossible to get my dad. It would be impossible. He's in Florida now, and he's just doing his own thing and rarely talks to us. By family, you would mean everybody, right? Like, he would have to be involved. You, I mean, listen, I always say whoever goes to family counseling, it, you are changing the energy and the consciousness around your entire family. So if you just went to counseling, you would change you, you would change your son, you would change your interactions with your mom, your interactions with your dad. If you get your mom on board, that changes her interactions with people. It is, it, it is just so needed for people to get in there and see your patterns and, and see your behaviors and look at everything honestly and call it by its right name and, you know, really sit there and analyze it. It changes everything. Yeah, I'm afraid they would lock me up in a white room and throw away the key. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just say, I work, you know, I've worked with families for decades and there is no quote unquote normal family. Everybody's dealing with something. Everybody has something very odd. Everybody has something that they're like, oh my God, I don't want anybody to know this. That's every family. I mean, humans are a mixed bunch here. <laughs> Yeah, that's one thing I really drive home on this podcast is that every family is different and you can make yes. it work. Every single family is different. So don't like don't have these expectations of what a perfect family looks like because you'll just be you'll be unsatisfied. It's not realistic. Your family yeah, and is then your you'll family. get a divorce and you'll end up in it. I mean, that's why, you know, and then the second marriage, it's, you know, the percentage of it goes down to like 30 percent chance of working. And then the third marriage goes down to like 10 percent chance of working. And really, all you've done is marry the same exact person. And all you Crazy. had to do was work on yourself. And then you would have a grip. Then you would be vibrating on a different level and you would attract somebody on that level that doesn't have those issues because you no longer have those issues. What do you, what is your stance behind forgiveness? Like, let's say that. Oh, I'm so glad you asked me that. <laughs> yeah. Let's say that someone, you know, knocks up their, their girlfriend and then leaves the picture never to be seen again. So the dad is just out of the picture. Like where, where do you stand on forgiveness? So did my publisher ask you to ask me about forgiveness? <laughs> no. So forgiveness uh -uh. is the main, um, message that in my book reading, signings, podcasts, whatever that I've been talking about. That's how I end the book. Um, and I wanted to be very explicit in my book about the trauma and what I dealt with so that at the end, people see that I forgave. So if I can forgive eight out of 10 traumas, I am very big about you should forgive everyone for everything all the time. Wow. We are wow. on this planet to forgive. 
you, you make are it sound no easy, better right? than anyone else. It's not easy, but I will say what I the quote that I end my book with. And if you can put somebody in your head right now as I'm saying this, that you need to forgive, that you that you need to do some work on, and you'll see how automatically forgiveness works. So I study every morning um, a spiritual leader named Eckhart Tolle. And I meditate and I've read all of his books and I do everything. And I ended my book with one of his quotes about forgiveness. And he talks about forgiveness a lot. But it is, um, if her past were your past, her pain, your pain, her level of consciousness, your level of consciousness, you would think and act exactly as she did. Herein lies forgiveness, peace, and love. And you could put your dad in that. You yeah. could put anyone in that. And really, if we had everything that that person had, we'd be doing the exact same thing. And I'm sure that there's people that need to forgive you and I for things that we have done. Um, I am a firm believer that we would have such a kinder, gentler world if there was just more forgiveness. And I'm definitely big about forgiveness when it comes to mental illness um, and addiction, these people don't want to be that way. Um, I have a saying that I say a lot, and it's hurt people hurt people. Oh, my God. I say that all the time. You do. Very I do. Good. Yeah. It's like my slogan for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's awesome. You just said that. Well, very good. And so, you know, they don't want to hurt people. They feel very ashamed and they feel very guilty about hurting people. And when you don't forgive them and give them a past, you're just adding to their shame and guilt, which means you're just then adding to them their suffering and then more suffering just spews onto other people. Um, we need to let people off the hook. We need to forgive. Let it go. Let it go and tell them you forgive them. Tell everyone you forgive them and truly work on forgiveness. People are always doing the best they can. They truly are. It may not be my best, but they're doing the best they can. And you adding shame to them and hurt to them and resentment to them, it hurts you and it hurts them. It does nothing for anybody. Yeah. There you Except go. that guy at the gas station that gave me the wrong change. Yeah. <laughs> well, and there is no telling what that poor man was dealing with. That's the thing. You never know like what state you're meeting somebody in. No. Like it could be the worst day of his life and you don't give him any benefits of the doubt. You just kind of like, you know, crap on him. And it's like, yep. you don't know what he's going through. You have no idea. And I just feel like we, we, uh, uh, you know, there's some, it's weird to me. There's a saying that I hear a lot of younger generations say, I have my truth. I'm going to speak my truth. Okay. And I get that. But you're also, in some ways, you need to understand life isn't just about your truth. There, there are billions mm. of people on this planet. Yeah. And so if you want somebody to hear yours, you need to also hear other people's. And you need to be just as kind and compassionate about it as you want people to be about yours. And you need to listen as intently as you're wanting people to hear you. Yeah, it's kind of an egocentric thing to say. I'm keeping it real. This is my truth. Yeah, so, uh -huh. yeah you become the, uh, what is it, like the main character syndrome? That's what it seems like yeah. to me. Yeah. Why are people so reluctant to forgive? Is it like, is it embarrassment or is it the ego? I think it's all ego. I think it's all ego. All ego. I think we tell ourselves a story in our head that we've been wronged and that we're a victim and it becomes our identity. 
and it becomes something to talk about and complain about. And, um, it becomes a way of getting attention and, um, and really you never are going to get to a place of peace and love without just letting it go. Who cares? Who cares? They're working on themselves. Let, let it go. Don't add to shame and guilt and don't add to your resentment. All you're doing is taking rocks and picking them up and sticking them in your little backpack. You're carrying around so much weight, so many rocks you keep picking up and putting in there. Don't pick up the rock and put it in there. Let it go. It's okay. It's okay. You've hurt people too. When you want somebody to think about the worst thing you've done to somebody in that all you want is for them to just forgive you, just let you off the hook. And it breaks my heart when I see people with mental illness. I talk about this in chaos and color. When I see people with mental illness and you, you are so quick to judge and hold it against them. They were born this way. They can't help it. They are doing the best they can hurt people, hurt people. It's the way it happens. Yeah. Do you forgive the CPS? I do. I do. You just heard me say, I, I will go very quickly to what I think maybe is causing somebody to put suffering out there, you know, and I know they're underfunded and I know that they don't have many people. And I know that there's so many cases on this planet mm. of kids needing help. I know that. I know that. And in really some ways I have to say, you know, I can turn anything into a blessing. Let me just tell you, Jay, I can turn anything into a blessing. I can tell from talking to you for a little bit. in so many ways, I'm kind of thankful that they didn't. You know, I was home by myself. I wasn't in foster care with strangers. You know, there are some strangers that I was left with that my mom would leave me with. But the majority of the time I was at home or I was with a family that I, I was always around at certain times or my grandfather or my dad. You know, thankfully, I wasn't put in the foster care system. Who knows yeah. what I would have been like then? I right, might have had right. the other two traumas. I mean, who knows? I can yeah. always find a blessing in anything. That's wonderful. Where do you think that characteristic comes from? That's That seems like it's years and years of working on yourself. Yes. Maybe some meditation helps with it, that as well, I would it say. Is. It's years and years of all of that. But I will tell you, forgiveness is a big one. I don't believe that we're given anything horrible in this life that doesn't have but blessings in it. There's always some way to learn. There's always something to learn from. There's always someone you can forgive and show kindness and love to. There's always something you can learn in it. And I do believe if you continue to have the same lesson, you're going to keep the same lesson until you learn from it. And then you move on. At what age do you think that... You should start bringing your kid to therapy. Young. Young. (laughs) How young? Play therapy. There's play therapy for little kiddos. Um, You know, as soon as they're, they're, they, you know, they're speaking English and you're communicating with them, you know, not English, but they're, you're able to communicate with them on (laughs) some level. They can speak any language. It doesn't matter, but you're able to communicate with them on some level. I mean, we have kids that are nonverbal. Um, that, you know, we do different types of therapy with, um, if they have experienced a hurt, a trauma, they need to be in therapy. Let's say two and a half years old, they can speak a little bit. Play therapy is amazing. They can go in there and play with someone and talk to them and draw, but you know, at, at that age, both parents spending time with them and playing with them and having activities with them is amazing. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of divorce going around nowadays. And I'm just, 
it hasn't always been like that, right? Well, so my generation was the first generation of it. I'm um, Generation X, um, and we were the we were what they called latchkey kids. We were the very first generation that parents were divorced, and they gave us a key and said, "Go home after school. Here's your key to get in." And it was the first generation. No parents were home when you got home. Nobody yep. knew what we were doing. I'm we always familiar with it. Yep. Our generation is like nobody cared what we were doing. Nobody knew what we were doing. <laughs> yeah. Like give you a quarter to go to a phone booth. Um, and you know, before that there wasn't divorce. I mean, Everyone's like, what the hell is a phone booth? Oh, no, right? right? <laughs> it's insane what we dealt with. I mean, yeah. I do love it. It's made us all a pretty strong generation, but um, you know, it's kind of crazy when people just look at you and say, here's a key when you're like six years old. Yeah, could you imagine nowadays? There's no way. What age does that start at? 24? (laughs) Exactly. Right? No no way. (laughs) No way. That's crazy. Um, Jeez. Because I have a, you know, I have a son as I'm talking, as I've been telling you about, I just, he seems really, he's really good. He's doing really well in school and he, his mannerisms are, are excellent. His, his characteristics are wonderful. He's a really good kid. I see him nearly every day. Me and my ex-wife have a really good relationship. Oh, really wonderful. good. Open door. I mean, co-parenting to the max. Um, my dad and her dad were best friends. So I still like, I go to her family parties. She comes to mine. We're always hanging out together with our kid. Oh, I'm proud of y'all. That is wonderful. Yeah. That's kind of why I made this, uh, this podcast, you know, that's just to wonderful. show people that it is possible. Like what you were just talking about forgiveness. We like the forgiveness is there. We forgive each other. There's something bigger. We have a child together. Let's. Yeah, and and that child was supposed to come into this world. (laughs) That's why you guys got together. So you want to cultivate that, that childhood and do everything you can for him. And at a certain age, you know, I would ask him, do you want us to all go to counseling? Do you want to go to counseling yourself? I, you know, wanted my daughter to go to counseling, like, I think she was in middle school when we found out my husband was bipolar and she went, she didn't like it. She didn't want to go, you know, which, you know, please understand she's grown up with the psychologist, but, um, right, and right. when she went off to college out of nowhere, she came and said, you know what, mom, I would love to go to counseling. And she goes once a week. And now she is the biggest person about everybody needs to be in counseling. She absolutely oh, wow. loves it. Yeah. Well, it that's true. When you go in and start doing the work and you have yeah. somebody and it's confidential and, you have somebody that you can just kind of talk about things and they hold a mirror up in front of you and you start to learn about yourself and <clears throat> it is liberating. It's, it's pretty amazing. The only way you can really learn about yourself is speaking out loud. Would you say that's true or no? Because I've learned so much about myself doing this podcast. Just like sometimes I'll do these solo podcasts. I understand that talking to someone is probably much better as well. But when I just come on here and just start talking, like, shit that I didn't even know about myself just comes to the surface and I just let it out. And then I'll in real time start thinking about my life. Like, Oh my God. Whoa. Yes. That, that's why I started writing. And I right, always say right. that me writing my book was the most healing and cathartic thing I have ever done. And I've been in counseling and I'm in psychology. Um, and really after I did that, I was like, wow, I don't even need psychology anymore. And that's kind of when I went to Eckhart, but you know, I kind of just, I felt like evolved past that, but 
I, it was writing, it was sitting down by myself and writing down what had happened and looking at it and going, Oh my gosh, how are you still here? Like what that happened? Like, (laughs) that was probably such a nice dump to get off of your chest. Just like a mental dump. Like like how much pounds off off of me. That's crazy. Yeah. How, How long is your book? Uh, 200 and something pages, maybe it's like 21 chapters. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you know, I talk about the mental health system. I talk, you know, there's, there's a lot that I go into. Um, but you know, please, please get the book and you know, you know, somebody that's bipolar, it's in y'all's family. Yeah. Yeah. Pass it around. Y'all have that conversation that people need to have to get your family members help. Don't shame them, help them, forgive them. Yeah. yeah, I will. I'll pass that book on. Thank you. I'm glad that we uh we met so I'm able to do that. I mean, geez, what a blessing, right? Talk about your blessings. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you said there it. There you go. Well, listen, let's wrap it up here. I appreciate you uh you dropping by. I mean, you are a wealth of knowledge. Thank you. I feel better after talking to you for a little bit. And, uh, you give me hope. Thank you give you. me hope. I'm sure the listeners have hope <laughs> too now as well. Um, go ahead and uh, go ahead and you know spout off what your your book's name is, where they can pick up your book. If you have social medias, anything like that. Um. So I'm Dr. Layla Salik. My book is called Chaos and Color. You can get it on Amazon or anywhere you get books. Um. And I have a website that's drsalik.com. And I'm currently about to finish my second book called Dear Caregiver. And it's basically a diary of sorts for people that are a caregiver for those that are mentally ill. It goes through every topic somebody might want to go in. Um, But I would really love over the holidays if everyone could get chaos in color and give it to a family member that's struggling or, you know, somebody that that is dealing with someone that's mentally ill. It's it's a good it's a good read for people to have these difficult conversations. Magnificent. Awesome. Dr. Layla, thank you so much for being here. Thank really you appreciate for having it. me. Of course, everyone at home, check out the book. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next one. All right. Peace. Thank you, Jay. You know who makes-